5% of all UFO sightings can be immediately identified. It's the 5% that give you the release. Pilots chase them sometimes, but can't catch them. There are near misses between these things and commercial aircraft. And you saw the disc of uh, These are very hard to dismiss, the, the handful of sightings. A UFO in broad daylight near Paris. We suddenly observed a very bright red-orange object. It was oval. UFOs have interfered with missiles. I saw something that defied logic. Reported a strange craft, triangular in shape. On the triangular shape craft. Mystery craft being seen. Dark metallic in appearance. Flying craft. There's an orange orb. Glowing orb. A glowing orb. A giant ball of light. Glowing object. Could be aliens. Some form of alien spacecraft. This is Billy Crone of Get a Life Ministries, and I wanted to thank you for joining us for UFOs, The Great Last Days Deception. And we're outside here today in lovely Rachel, Nevada, the last pit stop before the infamous Area 51. In fact, if you drive down this road right here, you too might get your equipment confiscated. But being in Las Vegas, we felt, hey, what better place to shoot this documentary than outside the infamous Area 51, the well-known hotspot for UFO activity. And folks, what you're about to see is what I believe one of the most sinister plots ever foisted upon mankind. It's dark, it's deceptive, and it's dangerous. And it's centered around, believe it or not, the topic of UFOs. And I believe, and I think you will too, agree when we're done with this documentary that UFOs and the so-called mysteries surrounding them are single-handedly helping to usher mankind into one of the most darkest, deceptive periods this planet has ever seen. And frankly, believe it or not, it's been going on for quite some time. But don't take my word for it. Let's start off this documentary by taking a brief look at the history of UFO sightings around the world. And you tell me if something hasn't been cooking for quite some time now. Let's take a look. Most people today envision UFOs to be exactly as they are portrayed in most science fiction films and books. This is, of course, a relatively recent conception that has been stimulated, perhaps, by our expanding knowledge of outer space. But strange sights appeared in the skies long before spaceflight or manned flight of any kind was possible. And in each century, these visions took on identities that tell much about the worldview of those who saw them. Alexander the Great and his army, for instance, were harassed by a pair of flying objects in 329 B.C. Most of the soldiers fled the scene, but some of the hardier men stood their ground and tried to hit the discs with their arrows and with stones from their slings. Engraved onto a French token minted in the 1860s is a disc-shaped flying object that experts say may have commemorated a daytime UFO sighting. There were sightings in 1897 of a lighter-than-air ship that had propellers, porthole windows, and brilliant searchlights, which it directed at the ground. Now, folks, right out of the gate, I don't know if you noticed it or not, 
But in looking at the history of UFO sightings, they changed their appearance to the changing technology of the culture. Now, to me, this is your first clue that something fishy is going on here. Let's start off with the last one that was mentioned there in the late 1800s, the Mystery or Phantom Airships. This class of UFOs are best known from a series of newspaper reports originating in the western United States and spreading east during the late 1800s. In fact, airship reports were made worldwide as early as the 1880s and they're considered to be the cultural predecessor to modern extraterrestrial piloted flying saucer style UFO claims. Typical airship reports involved unidentified lights, but more detailed accounts reported ships comparable to a dirigible or a blimp, and reports of the alleged crewmen and pilots usually described them as human-looking, although sometimes the crew claimed to be from Mars. Now, stop and think about that. Why appear as a blimp back then, and not the same kind of aircraft people see today? Did your technology really change that drastically, and or did you really travel from Mars on a blimp? Or are you mimicking people's flying technology based upon their generation, and then changing it to fit or mimic the next generation's technology that has now become much more advanced. But that's not all. Let's skip ahead uh, uh, later to 1942. And this is the Hapa incident in China. This is an alleged UFO sighting that was spotted and photographed, but was tucked away in a, a scrapbook. As you can see with the photo here, a young Japanese student was going through his father's photographs from the China campaign and discovered a photo with a strange cone-shaped object in the sky, as you can see there. It showed a number of people in the street looking up and two pointing up at the object. It is reported that a sidewalk photographer snapped a picture of the strange machine. And speaking of 1942, over here in America, the Battle of LA. And of course, this was in Los Angeles, California. And this is the infamous account of unidentified aerial objects that actually triggered the firing of thousands of anti-aircraft rounds and raised the wartime alert status. It was just three months after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, and it was originally assumed to be another airstrike from Japan. The true identity of the object is still unknown today, as this video shows. Let's take a look. Los Angeles, California. In the early months of 1942, the city was on edge. The recent surprise attack on Pearl Harbor had propelled America into World War II. And the threat of a Japanese invasion, by sea or by air, kept the military on full alert. Pearl Harbor was a very recent memory for people. People were in high alert. There was a great deal of suspicion. Japanese Americans were being put in internment camps. There were German U-boats in the Atlantic, Japanese submarines in the Pacific, and people were very fearful. In a well-organized defense operation, air raid wardens and the Coast Guard were monitoring the Pacific shoreline as never before. The war had started. I was a 13-year-old kid and this one night, which was February 1942, the sirens started wailing in the middle of the night. Blackout. And we'd had several blackouts before this. On February 25th, 
Between the hours of 3.12 and 4.15 a.m., the 37th Coast Artillery Brigade in Los Angeles fired off a barrage of anti-aircraft shells at an unidentified flying object. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a wide arc along the coastal area. I think what woke me up initially was the sound of anti-aircraft guns. I jumped out of bed and my parents were up. My father was an air raid warden. He figured this has to be the real thing. My mother was telling my brother and I, get under the bed, get under the bed, stay there. And of course we got out and we peeked. It was all this firing. It was almost like a 4th of July. I started hearing a lot of loud explosions. My brother and I looked out the bedroom window, saw searchlights twisting and turning in the sky. But what was the strange UFO that the searchlights were focused on? Where had it come from? Japan or somewhere? from out of this world. Could this incredible photograph, published the next morning in the Los Angeles Times, provide the proof? Could ancient astronaut theorists have been right all along? It was practically overhead, and I mean overhead. Retired anthropology professor C. Scott Littleton was nine years old and growing up in Hermosa Beach when he spotted the strange object hovering right over his house. We saw what my mother always called a silver bug. I'd characterize it today as a lozenge, a long oval. It was something I'll never ever forget. It was caught in searchlight beams and anti-aircraft shells were exploding all around it. It gradually went like this, and then began to lose altitude a little bit as it moved over what had to have been Redondo Beach. We lost track of it, but the banging continued. And very quickly afterward, I saw, we all saw, a flight of planes following the track of the object, going overhead anywhere from three to five, interceptors, uh, clearly piston-driven U.S. planes. No one has ever admitted that those planes were in the sky. Our first thought immediately was a Japanese observation plane. Later, the Japanese records definitively proved there were no Japanese planes over Southern California that night or indeed ever. After ruling out the possibility that a Japanese plane had invaded American airspace, Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox attributed the incident to war nerves. But Secretary of War Henry Stimson quickly refuted this explanation, defensively declaring that an actual aircraft had been the target of the assault. To this day, no one seems to know just what or who 
was hovering over Los Angeles that night. By a process of elimination, the most efficient, and I say this as a scholar, the most efficient explanation is that it was what we would call today a UFO. Something not of this world, something that belonged to another technology. If that's true, then this event was one of the largest mass UFO sightings in history. Over a million people saw it. Well, let's fast forward to 1946, and that's where he had the ghost rockets in Scandinavia. These were objects that were sighted repeatedly over Scandinavia, even to the point where the Swedish defense staff expressed their concern, as this video shows. You spoke in your uh, presentation about certain events that took place over Scandinavia in the, in the mid-40s. Uh, yes. The objects were, uh, were seen, and uh, what were those objects, and, and did, what was the interest in terms of defense following that? In the summer of 1946, there was a massive wave of what became known as ghost rockets, sometimes spook bombs, they were called. They seemed to be concentrated in Scandinavia, Sweden in particular. There's no doubt about that, but the fact of the matter is that it was a worldwide phenomenon. They were seen as far south as India. There were reports from Turkey, from Greece, and there were other events around the world at this time, but definitely the concentration was over Sweden, and for several weeks in the summer of 1946, these things were seen, there were thousands of reports, several thousand reports, and they were often seen like tra trailing fire sometimes, sometimes not trailing anything. They were generally described as tubular objects, but and very occasionally wing-type protrusions were seen, but often no protrusions at all, such as would be required to guide a rocket, like guiding vanes on, on a rocket, like a, such as a V-2. The consensus of opinion at that time was that the Russians were test-flying V-2 rockets captured from the Nazis, because both the Americans and the Russians had captured uh, V-2 Nazi rockets. And they were certainly doing some experiments with them, but in 1946, it was far too early for the Russians to have developed anything so sophisticated, because these things were diving into lakes, they were seen leaving lakes in some cases, they were encountered by Saab bombers, uh, there was one craft which actually uh, struck one of, there was a collision with one of the Saab bombers and that was... The pilot was lost, was, I assume? Three-man crew was lost. This made headlines a story in the Washington Post, completely unexplained. And these were not anybody's rockets that we, that we know of. They were not Russian because uh, one of the world's leading aviation historians, Bill Gunston, uh, has confirmed in my book that there's no way so many sightings could be attributed to Russian uh, experiments. And why would, you, why would you fly them over, like, you know, the middle of Stockholm? It just doesn't make any kind of sense. Besides, they didn't look anything like V2s. 
Were they moving at variable speed? Variable speed, sometimes proceeding in a leisurely pace, sometimes at tremendously high speeds, right. at varying altitudes, so it remains unexplained. In 1946, you also had the Angel Home incident in Sweden, and a gentleman named Gosta Carlson reported seeing a UFO and its alien passengers. A model of a flying saucer is now erected at the site, as you can see in the photo. Then in 1947, we have the Maury Island incident in Washington State. A gentleman named Harold Dahl reported that his dog was killed and his son was injured by encounters with UFOs. He also claimed that a witness was threatened by men in black. But the mystery continues right on up to today, as this video shows. Let's take a look. Like fog on a fall day, a haze of mystery still surrounds Maury Island nearly 60 years after a supposed spaceship sighting that's still not fully explained. It's been written about in books, even captured in the comics, but outside of hardcore mystery buffs, few people know about what may have happened two weeks before the most famous UFO sighting. People are always talking about Roswell and very few people realize that the first UFO incident was in Puget Sound. A man named Harold Dahl and his 15-year-old son were out in a boat, salvaging logs just off Maury Island. It was the afternoon of June 21, 1947, when they say six large donut-shaped objects appeared overhead, one which seemed to be having problems staying airborne. Dahl says as he quickly brought the boat to shore, the troubled UFO began dropping tons of hot metal and rocks. Dahl claimed his son was even burned on the arm and their dog was killed by the dump of debris. The whole beach was said to be covered with that slag. No one knows for sure if it had been previously dumped here by a local smelter or if it indeed fell from a saucer in the sky. But it did get the attention of the government. Two Air Force officers soon arrived. They studied the facts, scooped up some of the flag, climbed onto a plane, and died. Their B-25 crashed near Kelso. And there are some reports that they might have been sabotaged, that otherwise somebody was trying to stop them from analyzing it and somehow cause their plane to crash. Philip Lipson with the Seattle Museum of the Mysteries says the Air Force's investigation of the crash site was classified and the site still hasn't been thoroughly investigated by an outside agency. That's part of why the mystery of what happened at Maury Island still endures today. I think they did see UFOs and something dropped slag on the beach. Then in 1947, we had the Kenneth Arnold UFO sighting in Washington State. Three days after the Maury Island instance that we just saw, this UFO sighting sparked for the very first time the term flying saucer. While flying near Mount Rainier in Washington, pilot Kenneth Arnold spotted a formation of nine silvery crescent-shaped objects flying in type formation. He described the disc's movement to a reporter as, quote, like pie plates skipping over the water. In his story the next day, the reporter coined the term flying saucers, and the label has stuck ever since then. Later, he estimates their size at 40 to 50 feet wide, their speed at a fantastic 1,200 miles per hour, more than twice as fast as any known aircraft of that day. In fact, here's the actual original radio broadcast immediately after the event took place. Let's listen in. Newscaster in every newspaper across the nation has made headlines out of it 
And this afternoon, we are honored indeed to have here in our studio this man, Kenneth Arnold, who we believe may be able to give us a first-hand account and give you the same on what happened. Kenneth, first of all, if you'll move up here to the microphone just a little closer, uh, we'll ask you uh, to just tell in your own fashion, as you told us last night in your hotel room and again this morning, uh, what you were doing there and how this entire thing started. Go ahead, Kenneth. Well, at about uh, 2.15, I took off from Chehalis, Washington, en route to Yakima, and of course, every time that any of us fly over the country near Mount Rainier, we spend an hour or two in search of the marine plane that's never been found that they believe is in the snow someplace southwest of that particular area. That area is located at about, or <coughs> its elevation is about 10,000 foot, and I had made one sweep in close to Mount Rainier and down one of the canyons and was dragging it for any types of objects that might prove to be the marine ship. Uh, and as I come out, uh, of the canyon there, it was about 15 minutes. I was approximately 25 to 28 miles from Mount Rainier. I climbed back up to 9,200 feet, and I noticed to the left of me a chain which looked to me like the tail of a Chinese kite, uh, kind of weaving and going at a terrific speed across the face of Mount Rainier. I, uh, at first, uh, thought they were geese because it flew like geese, but it was going so fast that that uh, I immediately changed my mind and decided it was a bunch of new jet planes in formation. Well, as the, as the planes come to the edge of Mount Rainier, flying at about 160 degrees south, uh, I uh, thought I would clock them because it was such a clear day, and uh, I didn't know where their destination was, but uh, due to the fact that I had Mount St. Helens and Mount Adams to clock them by, I just thought I'd see just how fast they were going, since among pilots we argue about speed so much. And... Uh, uh, they seemed to flip and flash in the sun just like a mirror. And, uh, in fact, I happened to be at an angle from the sun that seemed to hit the tops of these uh, peculiar-looking things in such a way that it, it almost blinded you when you when you looked at, at them through your plexiglass windshield. Well, uh, I uh, it was about one minute to three when uh, I, st I <coughs> started clocking them on my, uh, my sweep second-hand clock. And uh, as I kept looking at them, I kept looking for their tails. They didn't have any tails. <laughs> I thought, well, maybe I, something's wrong with my eyes. And I turned the, the plane around and opens the window and looks out the window, and sure enough, I couldn't find any tails on them. And uh, the whole observation of these particular ships didn't last more than about two and a half minutes, and I could see them only plainly when uh, they seemed to tip their wing or whatever it was, and the sun flashed on them. They looked something like uh, a pie plate that was cut in half with a sort of a convex triangle in the rear. Now, I thought, well, uh, that maybe they're jet planes with just the, pa the tail painted green or brown or something, and didn't think too, too much of it, but kept on watching them. Uh, they didn't fly in a conventional formation that's taught in our army. They, uh, they seemed to kind of weave in and out right above the mountaintop. And uh, I would say that they even went down into the canyons in several instances Oh, probably a hundred feet, but I could see them against uh, the snow, of course, on Mount Rainier and against the snow on Mount Adams as they were flashing, and uh, against a high ridge that happens to lay in between Mount Rainier and Mount Adams. But uh, when I observed the tail end of the last one passing Mount Adams, and I was at an angle uh, near Mount Rainier from it, but uh, I looked at my watch and it showed one minute and 42 seconds. Well, uh, I still thought, well, that's pretty fast, and I didn't stop to think what the distance was between the two mountains. Well, I landed at Yakima, Washington, and uh, Al Baxter was there to greet me, and he saw up here. 
And uh, <laughs> he told me, I guess I better change my brand. <laughs> Uh, but he, he kind of gave me a mysterious sort of a look that maybe I had seen something he didn't know. And, well, I just kind of forgot it then until I got down at Pendleton, and I, I began looking at my map and taking measurements on it. And the best calculation I could figure out, now even in spite of error, would be around 1,200 miles an hour, because making the distance from Mount Rainier to Mount Adams in, we'll say, approximately two minutes, it's almost, uh, well, it would be around 25 miles per minute. Now, allowing for error, we can give them three minutes or four minutes to make it, and uh, they're still going more than, than 800 miles an hour, and to my knowledge, there isn't anything that I read about outside of some of the German rockets that would go that fast. These were flying in more or less a level, uh, constant altitude. They weren't going up and they weren't going down. They were just simply flying straight and level, and I, uh, <laughs> I laughed and I told the pilot at Fennel, I said, they sure must have had a tailwind, <laughs> but it didn't seem to help me much. But to the best of my knowledge and the best of my description, uh, that is what I actually saw. And uh, like I told the Associated Press, I'll, uh, I'd be glad to confirm it with my hands on a Bible because I did see it. And whether it has anything to do with our army or our intelligence or whether it has to do with some foreign country, I don't know. But I did see it and I did clock it and I just happened to be in a beautiful position to do it. And uh, it's just as much a mystery to me as it is to everyone else who's been calling me the last 24 hours wondering what it was. And after Arnold's initial report, UFO sightings in our skies exploded. On June 26, four witnesses, including a doctor, saw a, quote, huge silver globe moving along the rim of the Grand Canyon. And two days after that, an Air Force pilot reported a flight of six disks over Lake Mead, Nevada. And within days, reports were pouring in from Michigan, Ohio, Oregon, Louisiana, and as far north even as Canada. And then, of course, we have in 1947, the Roswell UFO incident in Roswell, New Mexico. This is the infamous account where the United States Army Air Force allegedly captured a flying saucer. It's reported that they uh, recovered debris from an alien aircraft that was found in the desert of New Mexico, and thus began one of the biggest controversies and mysteries in U.S. history, including great suspicion of a government cover-up. Then in 1948, we had the green fireballs, and these were reported uh, in southwest United States. The objects were reported over several United States military bases, and an official investigation followed. Also in 1948, we had the Mantell UFO incident in Kentucky. U.S. Air Force sent a fighter pilot to actually investigate a UFO sighting over Fort Knox, Kentucky. Unfortunately, the pilot was killed while pursuing the UFO, as this video investigation shows. There is a great scene in the movie Independence Day when the pilot sacrifices his life to bring down an alien mother ship. Well, that was fiction. But nearly 60 years ago, a National Guard pilot in Kentucky died in the pursuit of a UFO. Drew Spire is here with the ongoing mystery behind the death of Captain Thomas Mantell. Drew? Well, David, a mystery indeed. This incident came on the heels of another UFO story that happened in the summer of 1947. That's when a UFO allegedly crashed in Roswell, New Mexico. That story, of course, well documented, but this equally puzzling mystery regarding a UFO in the skies above Kentucky just a few months after the Roswell incident. In our report, 1956 government film addressing this case, a case that'll never be solved because Captain Thomas Mantell from Simpson County, Kentucky, an experienced pilot and World War II ace took the answer to his grave. It made headlines across the country. 
January 7, 1948, 1.30 p.m., Kentucky State Police receive reports of a UFO near Godman Air Force Base. One report, one green signal, bright, shiny star. Four F-51 Mustangs on their way to Sanford Air Force Base, Kentucky, are contacted by the tower. In order to investigate a white object some 300 feet in diameter, one plane returns for fuel and oxygen, the three others approach the object. Mantelter Tower, I see it, above and ahead of me. I'm still climbing. The planes climbed to 22,000 feet, too high for World War II fighters without oxygen. Two returned to the base, leaving Captain Mantell in sole pursuit of the unknown. Minutes later, Mantell with another transmission. Mantell to tower. It appears to be a metallic object of tremendous size. Captain Mantell kept climbing, most likely past 30,000 feet. Radio contact was lost. Godwin Towers to Captain Mantell. Come in. Over. This is Godwin Towers to Captain Mantell. Come in. Over. Minutes later, less than two hours from the initial sightings, Mantell's F-51 crashed on a farm in Franklin, Kentucky. His watch stopped at 3.16 p.m., his body still strapped in his plane. By all accounts, he passed out from a lack of oxygen, forcing his plane to plunge to the ground. Today, an historical marker sits near the site where Mantell's plane went down here in Franklin, Kentucky. In fact, it went down on a farm nearby, Joe Phillips' farm. His son, a schoolchild then, was one of the first on the scene. We heard this real loud boom, you know. It actually shook the house. In fact, it was the best I remember, it was two of them like an explosion. William Phillips Jr. was six years old and homesick with his younger sister when the crash occurred. We run to the window and just happened to run to the right window and see it hit the ground just as it hit the ground. The news of the incident immediately made headlines. Newspapers reporting that Mantell had been shot down by a magnetic ray from a flying saucer. The story took on a life of its own. He was the first person ever to die while pursuing an unidentified flying object. The military's response? Most likely he was chasing a weather balloon. I can't see that a balloon could move uh, and outrun a P-51. Because a P-51 was the fastest thing the military virtually had in 47. It's a story almost 60 years later that's still talked about in Franklin, Kentucky, where Mantell was born and, oddly enough, died just a few miles from the Simpson County Tourism Building, where he's honored. There are many UFO buffs who stop by to ask and see what we've got and then want to uh, know as much as they can about the story. It continues to fascinate people even after 50 years. Several years later, uh, when they restructured the project because, you know, Project Sign was the first one and they were serious and they came to the conclusion that we were dealing with something from somewhere else. Project Sign later became Project Blue Book because Mantell was a well-respected pilot it gave the UFO story credibility and the military was concerned. If you look in the Blue Book archives, if you look at the Blue Book records, which is the Air Force records, it shook a lot of military people up. After searching all the records and after the Air Force claimed that 
that it was a skyhook balloon. Uh, they have pretty good records on all the launches, but they never could establish a launch date for that day. Also, there were several reported sightings of UFOs on the day of Mantell's death, including Madisonville and Owensboro. Newly found documents left off the official Blue Book records show that some of these objects were maneuvering and could not be attributed to balloons of any kind. So for now, this case remains a mystery. In 1948, we had the Gorman dogfight in North Dakota. A U.S. Air Force pilot sighted and pursued a UFO for 27 minutes over Fargo, North Dakota. Gorman approached the object to investigate it, and suddenly uh, it brightened and accelerated. The object had been traveling about, quote, 250 miles per hour, but as Gorman began to chase, it sped up about 600 miles per hour. The P-51 could only travel 400 miles per hour, so the object quickly outdistanced Gorman. And then it made a 180 degree turn and it came straight at him. And Gorman, quote, attempted to crash into it, but as they neared, it veered upward and passed over him. Then in 1950, we had the Mariana UFO incident in Great Falls, Montana. The manager of a Great Falls pro baseball team took color film of two UFOs flying over Great Falls, Montana. The film was extensively analyzed by the U.S. Air Force and independent investigators. The actual footage can be seen here. Let's take a look. This film was shot August the 15th, 1950. It was taken in Great Falls, Montana by Nick Mariana. Immediately after we were notified of the sighting, we sent an intelligence man to get a first-hand report. My name is Nick Mariana. For the past six years, I've been the general manager of a minor league baseball club called the Electrics. We play out of Great Falls, Montana, and are a farm club of the Brooklyn Dodgers. On August 15, 1950, at Legion Ballpark in Great Falls, Montana, after a couple of hours in the clubhouse office, I went up into the grandstand to call the groundskeeper. As I reached the top of the stairway, I glanced northward to the tall Anaconda Copper Company smokestack to check the direction of the wind from the white smoke. Force of habit, I suppose, because our outfielders use it as an indicator on defensive play. As I looked up, I saw two silvery objects moving swiftly out of the northwest. They appeared to be moving directly south. The objects were very bright and about 10,000 feet in the air. They appeared to be of a bright, shiny metal, like polished silver. Both were the same size and were traveling at the same rate of speed, which was much slower than the jets which shot by shortly after I filmed the discs. Suddenly, they stopped. It was then I remembered the camera in the glove compartment of my car. I raced downstairs, yelling for my secretary, Miss Virginia Ronnie. The distance from the top of the stairway to my car is about 60 feet, and I must have made that in about six jumps. I asked my secretary if she saw anything, and she said, yes, two silvery spheres. I unlocked the glove compartment of my car, took out the camera, turned the telephoto lens on the turret into position, set the camera at F-22, picked up the objects in the viewfinder and pressed the trigger. The discs appeared to be spinning like a top and were about 50 feet across and about 50 yards apart. I could not see any exhaust, wings, or any kind of fuselage. There was no cabin, no odor, no sound, except I thought I heard a whooshing sound when I first saw them. As the film clicked through the camera, I could see the objects moving southeast behind the General Mills grain building 
and the black water tank directly south of the ballpark. I filmed the objects until they disappeared into the blue sky behind the water tank. Montana film projected exactly as it was photographed. The objects are moving against a 25 to 28 mile an hour wind. This is the film in double frame or slow motion. A slight bounce in the movement of the objects as well as the tower is perceptible. This is due to the handheld camera. The film, analyzed frame by frame, shows the movement of the objects to be horizontal and steady. We will now vary the action and size of the objects and also stop the action from time to time for your study. We have just made a jump cut in the film to an enlarged size and reversed the action. You are now seeing the objects exactly as they were photographed, but from a closer perspective. Analysis reveals that the objects are not balloons, nor any kind of known aircraft. The images are very different from those produced by any kind of birds at any distance. The shape, brightness, speed, rectilinear path, steady motion, and separation rule out various forms of optical atmospheric mirages or cloud reflections. Comprehensive analysis has eliminated meteors and other known natural phenomena. The possibility of airplane reflection has been carefully studied and ruled out. In 1950, we had the McMinnville UFO photographs in McMinnville, Oregon. And this is the account where two farmers took pictures of a reported flying saucer, as you can see in the photograph there. It is claimed that these are among the best known UFO pictures and continue to be analyzed and debated to this very day, as can be seen in this next video. Skeptics will often ask why there aren't better UFO photos available. In fact, there are UFO photos out there that have withstood expert analysis, the best of which come from McMinnville, Oregon, taken on May 11, 1950, by farmer Paul Trent. By analyzing the two photos, it was possible to determine where he stood, where Mr. Trent stood when he took the two photos, to within an accuracy of a foot or so. And so if you imagine looking down from above, you can plot where he was standing and where the sighting lines went out. And they said that this object moved uh, to the left, moved southward as they're looking towards the west. It moved slightly between pictures. And uh, in fact, he was standing in one location for the first photo, looking, let's say, this way. And then he moved a little bit to the north as this object was traveling along. He didn't want it to get blocked by the nearby garage, so he moved a little bit to his right. And then he looked and took a photo that was in this way, and the sighting lines crossed. Now, the overhead wires can be positioned where they were. And the sighting lines did not cross under the wires. So, you know, if it was a model, it wasn't hanging straight down under the wire. 
The two photographs taken by Paul Trent provided a stereoscopic pair of pictures that gave researchers the data necessary to determine and measure distances to objects within a short range of the camera. His altitude, or the altitude of the camera, also dropped by about a foot. So not only do you have a horizontal triangulation method, but you have a vertical triangulation method. Now when you combine those two methods of distance determination, you can determine the distance to every short-range object in those photos. And the UFO model, if that's what it was, does not fit. It is not at the close range of those overhead wires that are about 15 feet away from the camera. They don't fit the locations and distance of the garage or the house or the trees that were several hundred feet away in the, in the background. There's no indication that they actually, that this was a, a, a hoax, that the, the indications are totally that uh, they actually saw some object flying past their farm and took two photographs of it. In the 1960s, the U.S. Air Force contracted an outside scientific study of UFOs to be conducted by the University of Colorado. The astronomer William Hartman concluded that this is one of the few cases in which all of the geometric, photometric, and photogrammetric aspects agreed that there was an object, extraordinary object, tens of meters in size and metallic in appearance uh, about a mile away which would seem to be consistent with uh, an alien visitation, even though that's pretty hard to believe. Hard to believe? Perhaps. But in the McMinnville case, it's hard to escape the conclusion that a picture really is worth a thousand words. And in 1951, we have the Lubbock Lights in Lubbock, Texas. And these lights were repeatedly spotted flying over the city of Lubbock, Texas in a V formation with 20 or 30 of them at a time. The sighting was so popular and highly publicized that the photos and story appeared in Life magazine in 1952. The witnesses included professors from Texas Tech University and they were even photographed by a Texas Tech student as this video shows. For a few weeks in 1951, people here witnessed a phenomenon of a different sort, a series of UFO sightings that five decades later still defies explanation. Beginning August 25th, 1951, and for several nights that followed, a strange line of bluish lights were seen flying swiftly over Lubbock, Texas. This is an absolutely classic case for a number of different reasons, including the first group of people who saw the Lubbock lights, four college professors from Texas Tech University. They attempted to make a study of what they'd seen, a scientific study. They weren't wholly successful, but in the end, they concluded that the Lubbock lights were under intelligent control. You know, we're not talking about the flying saucer lunatic fringe here or something. We're talking about professional people who, not, who, who were apparently impressed enough by having seen strange things in the sky to go out and try to, uh, try to observe them under scientific conditions. Donald Burleson is a present-day college professor from Roswell, New Mexico, who says comparisons can be made to a more recent incident, March of 1997, when hundreds of people witnessed and videotaped a flotilla of flying objects over Phoenix, Arizona. Back in 1951, no one in Lubbock had a home video camera. But an 18-year-old college freshman named Carl Hart Jr. was a budding still photographer who was just about to go to bed 
when he saw the Lubbock Lights. So I just grabbed my camera and set the exposure on where I wanted it and ran back outside and, and waited. And then, you know, two more flights came over. I think I got two pictures of one and three of the other. When I first processed them, I didn't think I had a thing until I really examined them closely because they, uh, they didn't pick up a lot of room on that negative. Hart took the photos to his Boy Scout leader who contacted a reporter for the local newspaper, which eventually published them, but only after Hart endured the first in a series of grillings. First, talked to the people at the Avalanche Journal. They uh, were pretty skeptical. And then uh, after they published, well, first it was the Air Force. Local Air Force investigators turned Hart over to higher-ups from out of town and eventually to FBI agents. Pretty intense questioning. Yeah, they, uh, they went over and over you know, my story, and I guess uh, trying to catch me in being inconsistent, but uh, apparently they were satisfied eventually. Life magazine published a lengthy article in the spring of 1952, and over the years a number of independent studies were conducted. After nearly five decades of intense scrutiny, there is no reason to believe that Carl Hart faked anything. His photos are still among the most remarkable and vexing in UFO history. The government's official report was released in late 1951. Its conclusion, what Carl Hart captured on film, were highly reflective duck bellies. Very clearly, this imaging shows that these are not birds. Dr. Burleson, with advanced degrees in mathematics and literature, is conducting what could be the most intensive computer analysis of Hart's photographs to date. This is, in my estimation, the most spectacular of the photos. Uh, it shows a, f a regular flotilla of 18 large disc-like objects in the sky. I'm inclined to think that these objects may well each have been in excess of 200 feet in diameter. Burleson says the objects Hart photographed display what appears to be structure on the underside that may link them to whatever crashed in nearby Roswell, New Mexico four years earlier. It gives a clear indication of a kind of cell type or beehive type structure underneath. Uh, which is very interesting because it matches nicely with uh, witness descriptions of the Roswell object. I think he simply photographed something anomalous in the sky and was treated, frankly, pretty, pretty shabbily for his trouble. Carl Hart has never sought fame or fortune from the photos he took, just the opposite. Got the point where I just soon pass on it. I, if I, something comes up, well, I, I'll just soon ignore it. I guess there's a group of people that still feel like anybody that sees a UFO is uh, some kind of nutcase, and, and I get I get put in that category part of the time, and part of the people I guess think that anything like that has to be faked, and so I get a little bit of that. Even the government's analysis, some of it declassified years later, concluded there was no evidence of a hoax, that the negatives had not been retouched, that the lights were brighter than stars, and the objects changed position in the formation. And in 1952, we had the Washington, D.C. UFO incident. In July 1952, there was a series of sightings accompanied by radar contacts at three separate airports in the Washington, D.C. area. First spotted on an air traffic controller's radar, and they were moving in an unusual flight pattern that witnesses called bright orange lights. An Air Force Public Information Officer, Lieutenant Colonel Monsell Monte, confirmed the directive stating, quote, the jet pilots are and have been under orders to investigate unidentified objects and to shoot them down if they can't talk them down. 
It was further stated that no pilot had been able to get close enough to take a shot at one of the flying saucers because they would disappear or speed away as soon as they were approached, sometimes outflying their pilots by as much as a thousand miles an hour. In fact, the incident was so publicized that even President Truman demanded an explanation as this video shows. Strange lights over the U.S. Capitol more than 50 years ago. Fox 5's Brooke Baldwin investigates UFOs in Washington. The sky is the stage, the actors, so-called flying saucers. And they're back on the scene with some new twists. July 1952, air traffic controllers at Andrews Air Force Base in Maryland pick up 10 to 12 unidentified objects on radar. Minutes later, another sighting, this time at Washington National Airport. The Air Force sent up two fighter aircraft to intercept the flying objects, according to confidential security information now released to the public. The Air Force did respond in scrambled jets, and it was imaged and photographed over, I believe there were nine of them at one point that were actually seen in formation. Dr. Stephen M. Greer is the founder of the Disclosure Project. His organization collects information on unexplained sightings from all over the world, including the more than 2,000 reports around D.C. in the summer of 52, now known as the Washington Nationals. It's been very hard to bring out the information without it getting linked instantly to something that ends up being embarrassing. This famous photo shows seven bright objects flying near the Capitol Dome. Radar also picked up four more objects in Beltsville and in Herndon. Facing increased pressure from the public, the military held a news conference saying the objects seen throughout the region were weather-related, nothing more than, quote, temperature inversion. We have, as of date, come to only one firm conclusion with respect to this remaining percentage. And that is that it does not contain any pattern of purpose or of consistency that we can relate with any, to any conceivable threat to the United States. A conceivable threat that made it all the way to the Oval Office. The president got very interested and wanted some kind of a solution. Reserve Air Force Captain Kevin Randall has been studying UFOs for years. He's written 18 books, one of them specifically about the D.C. sightings. But the Air Force says basically, well, what it was is temperature inversions. Were there inversion layers over Washington, D.C. in 1950, July of 1952? The answer is yes, there were. Were they of sufficient strength to cause the problems you see on the radar? No. Controversy arises. Maybe the puzzling objects are from another planet. Puzzling objects Dr. Greer believes are behind a cover-up at the highest level. Everyone who I know who are military or intel were told, you didn't see this, you were not on the squadron that went up, you were, the radar operators were told, this never happened. But something did happen those July nights. Whether it was alien or not is still debatable. Kevin Randall, though, believes it's only a matter of time before the truth comes out. I believe what's going to happen eventually is there's going to be a UFO event that is inexplicable and leave the evidence behind that we cannot just explain away. The sightings, as you saw, made front page headlines around the nation and ultimately led to the formation of the Robertson panel by the CIA. In fact, during the 1950s, so many UFO sightings were reported around the world 
that the Air Force was publicly forced, at least to save face, to sit up and take notice. They couldn't let the American public think that they weren't interested in what surely posed a threat to national security. So they began a series of, quote, official UFO investigations. The first was Project Sign, then Project Grudge, and finally concluded with Project Blue Book. In 1952, we have the Flatwoods Monster Encounter, and that was in Flatwoods, West Virginia, and that's the account of six local boys and a woman reporting seeing a UFO actually land. But they also said there was a bizarre looking creature that appeared near the landing site itself. In 1953, we have the Ellsworth UFO case in Bismarck, North Dakota, and this is the account where the U.S. military investigated a UFO incident in Bismarck, North Dakota, which is now one of the most significant radar visual cases in the history of UFO sightings. It was witnessed by almost 45 agitated citizens along with military air defense system personnel. The description was of a red glowing light that made long sweeping movements over a period of two nights. Then in 1955, we have the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter in Kentucky. And this is the account where a group of strange goblin-like creatures were not only reported to have been seen by a family, but these creatures were reported to have even attacked the family. The family shot at them several times with little or no effect as this video reenactment clearly portrays. Let's take a look. They were just simple people, just simple country people. You know, honest type people. The house was sort of run down and old, uh, just a simple life and, and farming and trying to make a living. You gonna play him again, Billy? No, I reckon I know when I'm lick. Besides, I ain't got another dollar. When Billy Ray Taylor left the kitchen to fetch water from the nearby well, little could have prepared him for what would happen next. As he began to fill up his bucket, something unusual in the air caught his eye. I don't know what. It, it went licking his split across the field out there, and then it looked like it landed somewhere down in the gully. Here he goes again. Billy Ray, you are not only a bad card player, you are a very bad liar to boot. Oh, why would I lie about something like that? And it scared him so that he, uh, and he went inside to tell his family in disbelief. They put him down as a joke and told him to, you know, they sort of said, you know, don't be doing this again, you're doing this all the time. You got daft in the head, Billy Ray? You trying to pull a fast one? What would I do there? No doubt Taylor's story amused the family. Maybe it was a shooting star, Billy. Apparently they were not in the habit of taking him seriously and soon cast it aside as a practical joke. No one even bothered to walk out to the gully on the chance that something was there. Maybe it was a shooting star for all I know. I think your brain is a shooting star, son. Very funny. Before long, darkness fell over the small Kentucky homestead. At around 8 o'clock, Lucky's dogs began to bark violently as if an intruder was on the property. 
As the men stared out the window, they were startled to see a strange glow coming from the fields beyond. Lonnie Langford was 12 years old when he and the others encountered the mysterious invaders at Kelly. His mother was Glennie Langford, also the mother of Lucky Sutton. She and Lonnie, as well as his siblings, Charlton and Mary, would soon become witnesses to the impossible. Oh, there was a house full of people there, and they was all terrified. Instructing the family to stay inside, Lucky and Billy Ray warily walked outside to get a better look at their uninvited visitor. What in the name of God is that? As the thing came nearer, they could make out what seemed to be a small man, though a man unlike any that they had ever seen before. Please, please, go inside. Everybody, you stay put and you don't make a sound, or I'll whip your ever-loving hide if you do. Oh, Lord. Lucky and Billy Ray would take no chances. Horrified, the two men raced back inside and grabbed their shotguns as the others looked on in stunned silence. Back outside, an unearthly apparition was moving silently towards them. What on God's green earth is it? I don't think God's got nothing to do with it, Lucky. It's getting closer, Lucky. Looks just like a little man. I ain't never seen a little man with ears like that. A goblin. That's what it is. A goblin straight out of the pits of hell. A goblin. What are we going to do, Rocky? Shoot him. Shoot him. But it didn't hurt him. It just kind of rolled up in a little ball and kind of rolled back down the hill over there where the ship was. Inside the house, the men were confused and dazed, not certain what to do next, while the rest of the family, especially Glennie Langford and the children, remained vigilant next to the bed. Land of Goshen, Lucky, you're nearly scaring those kids half to death. For God's sakes, woman, there's a thing out there. What kind of a thing is it, Kelly? The kind of thing the good Lord never intended to be in this universe. Now, do you hear me, woman? We have got to protect our home. Oh, good Lord, Lucky, why did you have to go and shoot it? It probably never meant us any harm. You might have killed it. You ain't killed it, Lenny. I mean, a bullet sound like they hit nickel plate or something. It ain't human. And what ain't human don't deserve to live. My name is O.P. Baker, and I was in the house that night, and I saw them creatures. O.P. Baker, the brother of Eileen Sutton, was 30 years old in 1955. The farm laborer lived in Hopkinsville at the time but often stayed overnight at the farmhouse where the person with whom he rode to work could pick him up more conveniently than in town. 
Today, he is the only known adult survivor who was present on the night of the close encounter at Kelly. Back then, I wasn't going to old church, and I started church, and I've been going to church ever since. I remember we all were sitting there about, uh, I'd say, around uh, 8 o'clock. We heard a, a noise on top of the roof. Listen, Mom, listen. There's something on the roof. It is told that these beings were on the roof, scratching and clawing, uh, trying to get through the ceiling. And uh, the children and uh, mothers and such that were in the house at the time were s s trying to hide, trying to get away from this. They were all scared. Uh, make it go away. Go away. Please make it go away. There was one on top of the house on the awning. One of them was scratching on the window. I mean, they were, like, curious, wanting to see what was going on. As far as the guns being shot, uh, I don't know if whether it was on the, the far side of the house or this side. I, I do know that they said they, they come over. They say that curiosity killed the cat. But in this instance, the curious just grew more curious as the unknown beings once again emerged from the shadows. Well, he said they would come up to the windows and they just kind of stick to the side of a house like a spider could. And he said they just kind of peek around the windowsill with their heads and some old big baby eyes and they just look in the window and just stare. Mama screamed, I jumped up out of the bed, and I looked out the window, and I saw them. They were about three foot tall, had pointed ears, webbed feet and hands, and big round eyes. We had uh, great big ears, I mean big ears, and you could shoot them and wouldn't hurt them. And uh, he said they'd stare until one of them blow them off the windowsill. He said, once you blow them off the windowsill, he said they run outside and shoot one again. And by the time they got back in the house, look at the other window, there was another one looking in the window. Don't shoot those things, Nancy. Don't be stupid. Stay back and stay down. We got interlopers. Yeah, I was real scared. I was in the corner of the house on the floor, and everybody was running around there just panicked. I didn't know. I didn't know what was going on. What do you think's going on? God help us, I don't know. I just don't know. I think it's demons more than likely, Billy Ray. Hell has indeed come to this little house tonight. I think I killed it, Lucky. I couldn't have missed it such a close range. Well then, why didn't it lie prone to the ground, J.C., just like any normal human being? You, you, you do know what happened the first time we shot it? Well, I don't care if it's the devil himself. I'm going outside to finish him off. Him, his minion from the deep, dark outer space or wherever he comes from. I believe 
was a 20 gauge they was using, my father had. I believe Billy Ray had a 22. JC had another shotgun. And there's all three shooting at these things. None of them could make a, a hit to actually kill one of the creatures. One of them green men reached down and got him by the hair of the head. One of the little men picked him up by his hair. And then that's when they started shooting. And all the little kids, like my age, were under the bed. They were terrified. I can't say for sure, but I do know that there are there are uh, facts proving that something of a higher power had landed in their backfield. they made a direct hit on the creatures, it sounded as if their bullets had struck the center of a metal bucket. They just never could kill one of them. It just seemed to bounce off. He said it was a battle. they get on the window sills and it scared the women, they had to come in and blow them off the window sills and then they'd get seen on the window sills and they'd run outside and see where they were and they'd be in the trees and they'd blow them out of the trees. After taking a direct hit, the creature seemed to defy gravity as it floated off and landed in a grassy area several yards away. Cautiously, the shooters moved towards the spot where they believed it had fallen. To their surprise, a luminous glow appeared on the ground where the thing had been. These beings, these creatures, whatever they were, wherever they were from, displayed almost a very unusual intrigue and, uh, I guess, curiosity that is uncommon with this type of phenomenon. According to the witnesses, the creatures seemed capable of extremely rapid movement when running away, and it was impossible to tell whether there were several of them or whether there were only two or three that disappeared from one place and reappeared very quickly in another. Most of the officers were reluctant to express any opinions about the reported invasion, but all seemed impressed with the evident fright and sincerity of the highly excited family. A check with neighbors disclosed they were not prone to drinking, and no evidence of alcohol was found around the place. All the witnesses told practically the same story, with only minor variations, depending on what part of the house they were in at the time of the happening. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. 
Are you sure that if you were to die today that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so, out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law, or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly. The Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included, and that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. 
And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, They certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.